Welcome back to EdChoice Chats. I'm your host, Jason Bedrick, Director of Policy at EdChoice, and this is another edition of our Big Ideas series. Today, I'm grateful to be joined by Jonathan Butcher, a Senior Policy Analyst at the Heritage Foundation Center for Education Policy. He is the author of a new State Policy Network report titled Protecting Learning Pods, a 50-State Guide to Regulations Threatening the Latest Education Innovation, which is the subject of today's conversation. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. So we've been talking a lot about micro schools and learning pods and parent pods and pandemic pods and the other 50 names that they have. Before we get started, just remind our listeners, what are these and, and how particularly are learning pods and micro schools different from each other? That's a great question because all of this has developed just in the past few months, making the definitions of these things somewhat fluid. I think what we can do for the purposes of this report and describing what we found in terms of the research is separate the two ideas of a micro school and a learning pod. With a micro school, such as the Acton schools that are based out of Texas, or even Prenda, which is based out of Arizona, there usually you have an organization that serves as a private school, and the students that are attending the small group formats of these, the actual micro schools themselves will then be private school students. Typically, the parents will pay a fee and they'll, you know, they're paying a tuition or something similar, right? And so that will constitute a micro school. Now, with a learning pod, as we've seen over the past six months during the pandemic, as schools have closed down, parents have taken the initiative to put their children together with either other children in the neighborhood or other children in their child's school, and they meet in small groups sometimes using the district's e-learning platform, sometimes using curriculum that they've chosen themselves, but otherwise they're getting together apart from any other group like a micro school operator, right? They're doing this on their own. And sometimes they're doing it without registering as homeschoolers, right? They're doing it as a solution that may only last during the pandemic. Although as we have seen, some families are thinking about doing this for the long term between interviews that we've had with families doing learning pods now, and as we hear about more large districts that are planning to remain closed to in-person learning. So again, with a micro school, generally you're talking about private school students. With learning pods, you have a bit of a, a homeschool plus operation going. And I was talking with Kelly, the founder of Prenda out in Arizona, and he said to me, that these ideas do kind of overlap. But this distinction, I think, is a good way to describe the landscape as it sits right now. Right. So how do state and local regulators treat microschools and pods? I mean, are these private schools? Are they homeschool cooperatives? Are they just unlicensed daycares? How is the state looking at these arrangements? Yeah, all of the above. I think there's examples of all of those. I think before the pandemic, we had homeschoolers meeting in groups for at least part of the day and calling it a co-op. Microschools existed before the pandemic as well. And again, those usually satisfy what lawmakers are looking for because the students are generally private school students. What's happened during the pandemic, though, is that as parents have been meeting together in small groups, we've seen Department of Health and Human Services or Department of Child Services in different states begin to look on these small gatherings as in-home daycares. Now, what's significant, uh, one of the many significant things, 
is that usually in a childcare or a daycare situation, you're talking about children who are not school-aged. And what appears to be going on in states like Maine, Pennsylvania, even in Michigan, is that the regulators are looking at these school-aged gatherings of students and saying, well, let's take the rules that would apply to at-home daycares and either apply them and so require that families get a license or suggest that at some point in the future, it might be required. Right. So in other words, in most states, their daycare statutes apply to children that are infants through, let's say, age three to five, depending on the state. But here, some state regulators are now using those statutes to, say, go to a family that has a bunch of kids that, uh, you know, several families that have gotten together and their kids maybe ages eight through 14, and they're getting together in a pod. And the regulators look at this and say, oh, this, I think this is a, a daycare and you're not licensed. And therefore, you know, you've got to jump through these certain regulatory hoops in order to be in compliance. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, we're seeing that, you know, remember, what's important is that, is that uh, in most states, lawmakers are not in session right now. And so you don't have lawmakers, you know, a- able to look at legislation that may align learning pods with, say, home schools, private schools, charter schools, et cetera. And so the regulators have stepped in. And, you know, it's not a big surprise, right, because a lot of this kind of overlaps with the the COVID idea of meeting in small groups, you know, and we just came out of quarantine and that kind of thing. And they've kind of looked around for the regulations that may apply and saying, okay, it looks like we need to look at these groups of now school-age students and say, okay, you need to either register as homeschoolers or get a license for an in-home daycare or in some isolated spots, New Hampshire is one, uh, Alaska is another. There's evidence from agencies there that they're saying, no, we are not going to add additional rules right now. But in other places like Maine, of course, right next door to New Hampshire, they are saying, look, if you're meeting in a small group and you're using the district's material, their virtual learning platform, why then you're going to be subject to licensure. Now, your report quotes two policy experts, Carrie Lucas and Charlotte Whelan, who stated, quote, in practice, many of the regulations imposed on child care centers and family care providers go far beyond ensuring safety and well-being. They are prescriptive and limiting for facilities, end quote. What kind of regulations are they talking about? Which ones are the most concerning to you? Yeah, I think some of it would be the ratio between the pupil and adults, because in a the setting with small children, you know, they have numbers on how many adults they need to have, you know, a group of six or nine or 12 infants or toddlers. They've taken similar numbers here and applied it to school-age children now, which are numbers that are a smaller ratio than in most public school teacher, you know, pupil arrangement. So take Colorado, for example. Colorado had this sort of two steps forward, one step back executive order from the governor where he said, all right, we're going to temporarily suspend certain requirements for childcare arrangements in in existing licensed childcare centers. And he made the adult pupil ratios slightly larger. But even so, it was nowhere near the average size of a classroom in a public school. I mean, it was probably half the size. And so when you're looking at 
you know, putting these kind of arbitrary numbers on how big your learning pod can be while the assigned school district is closed, that's something that I think, you know, those of us that support uh, school choice in all its various forms should say, wait a minute, you know, this feels arbitrary and it feels like it's not an appropriate fit for what parents are trying to accomplish now. And it seems that they're they're taking a statute that's designed for one particular population and then just applying it to an entirely different population. Exactly. Exactly right. So in your view, you, you looked at all 50 states and, and what the regulatory environment is. Uh, which states are getting this right? Which ones are the most friendly to uh, learning pods? Well, based on the early returns, I think the statement from New Hampshire's Commissioner of Education is encouraging. He did an interview with the Homeschool Association there, the Granite State Educators, and it's available on their website that uh, was positive about pods. I think even you know what came out of Colorado is at least a step in the right direction. Again, because the legislature is not in session, it's hard to say that any state really has passed any, because no state has passed legislation to say, we're going to allow learning pods and here's what it's going to look like. I think the best we're able to hope for right now are state agencies not trying to limit the formation of learning pods in the first place. I think what's most concerning are the states that uh, have already begun to clamp down. So in Florida, it's not the state lawmakers that are the concern, but uh, local districts. For example, Broward County issued a statement saying that unless a learning pod meets certain conditions, again, surrounding childcare, they may be operating illegally. And that was sort of an ominous warning at the end of that statement. Uh, in Massachusetts, the governor issued, again, waivers similar to what was happening in Colorado. But he also, at the end of his note, said that parents cannot exchange money between themselves say, to cover the cost of food or to help cover, you know, the use of uh, a facility or a home or something like that. So on the one hand, what they did in Massachusetts appears to be a step towards allowing after-school programs to offer learning pods to school-aged children. But at the same time, it's, you know, limiting what parents can do. Because, again, parents can find all sorts of ingenious solutions here, um, and learning pods being one, to solve a real problem, right? They're trying to get themselves back to work. They're trying to continue their child's learning, and they're trying to make use of whatever resources are, av are available. So anytime a state, law, you know, a state comes out and says, well, we're going to allow you to, you know, to, to solve this problem, but you're going to have to ask permission under certain circumstances, you know, that's what I think those of us that you know, believe that we shouldn't have to ask permission before we do what's best for our family uh, should be concerned about. And what are the Massachusetts regulators, what's their rationale that they're giving for why they would prevent parents from pooling their resources together or for, you know, one parent is going to provide lunch for eight kids in the neighborhood and the other parents are just going to give them money? Why get in the way of that? Yeah, it's hard to say. I don't know if I can speak to their motivations. I, I, in talking with Jamie Gass at the Pioneer Institute, you know, he said that Massachusetts has this way of making a couple of good decisions to promote quality learning, while at the same time also restricting that. Limitations there on charter schools being one. I think what's happening now with pods being another. I think, you know, certainly in a place that's going to be union heavy, such as, you know, the Boston area, if you think take Fairfax County in Virginia, there the district has said that teachers can be a part of a learning pod so long as the children in that pod would not otherwise be in their class in the school, 
if school was open for in-person learning. That if Fairfax, of course, is the same place that's actually opening their school buildings for for pay daycare services, but they are not opening the school buildings for you know classroom activities. So I think the, you know these are the kinds of things that we need to be watching for. You know, unions, as you know, Jason, you know, and and uncovered. Unions are well aware of what's going on here and uh, are going to be watching this closely as well as what's happening with micro schools. So you've already named a number of states that you find concerning. Are there some other states out there that are doing things that are concerning you on the regulation front? Yeah, I think Maine and Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania was concerning because they were saying that you could form a pod of a certain size so long as you had certain procedures in place, like an emergency you know, evacuation uh, plan for a home or for the building that you were in, the phrase at-home visits has come up in places like Pennsylvania, as well as South Carolina, not to mention uh, as well as Connecticut. Although in Connecticut, it appears that some of the groups that are helping with learning pod formation are doing these at-home visits themselves. So it appears to be voluntary at this point. But, uh, but that's that is something, this idea of an at-home visit that should perk uh, any homeschooler's ears up and, um, and anyone who fears that, you know, we're taking this learning pod idea and steering it more towards the at-home daycare regulatory environment instead of what really should be something that promotes, you know, a, a flexible learning option. So state legislatures are going to be coming back into session soon, and I imagine that there are a number of legislators across the country who are going to be interested in protecting the right of families to engage in these sort of learning pod uh, situations without excessive government interference. So what would your advice be to these policymakers who want to protect the learning pods? And what, what sort of steps would you recommend that they take? Well, and this is a great opportunity for that. I, I would say, for one, I would keep learning pods free from the traditional at-home daycare requirements that are usually applied to uh, gatherings of small, you know, small groups where the children are not school-aged. I don't think that the adult-child you know, ratios should be the same. I think things like zoning requirements for homes and things like that should not be applied. Likewise, I would uh, be very careful with the healthy homeschool laws that exist in many states. I, I think rushing in to uh, to try and expand those, I, I would you know pause and make sure that we are aware of what the homeschool families and advocates there feel like they need before we go and try to change them. I think that we can design a way to dovetail learning pods with existing charter school, private school, education savings account, homeschool laws, so that one doesn't, you know, intrude on the other or overlap with the other. I think some basic things about, you know, not requiring small learning groups to register as a, as a private school, especially if the private school regulations are heavy. As you know, like in New York, in New York City, I, I would say saying that uh, these learning pods, they can simply be considered homeschool arrangements for groups and not require additional burdens on them for reporting or uh, registering or anything else that wouldn't be otherwise required for homeschoolers. And they can also, you know, do things like waive the deadlines for signing up to homeschool, especially in, in places where the district schools are still closed to in-person learning. So I think it's more about protecting learning pods from 
policies that would apply to a different policy area than you know necessarily trying to create something new or uh, uh, add to an existing you know school choice law. There there may be valid ways to do that, and there may be states that have an appetite for that. We always want to see innovative ideas. It's all you know parents should be looking for states that. Uh, want to create new options, but at the same token, we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't want to step backwards over what's already there and healthy. And 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 I don't think we need to do that. I think if we make the priority keeping at-home daycare rules away, we can count that as a success. Our guest today has been Jonathan Butcher, a senior policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation Center for Education Policy. His new state policy network report is titled "Protecting Learning Pods: A 50-State Guide to Regulations Threatening the Latest Education." innovation. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining our podcast today. Thank you. This has been another edition of EdChoice Chats. If you have any ideas for authors you'd like us to interview for the Big Ideas series, please send them to media at edchoice.org and be sure to subscribe to our podcast. Follow us on social media at edchoice and don't forget to sign up for our emails on our website edchoice.org. Thank you. We'll catch you next time.